Hi, and welcome to episode four of Sacred Science, Leaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us for this conversation today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses. When we think of technology, we think about the power it entails. When new advances allow us to change the world, there's often a fear that we're playing God. But while technology raises many ethical questions, it also creates new opportunities. So how do we strive to make sure that we're using technology rather than technology using us? Those were some of the conversations we discussed with Rabbi Rachel Gurevitz, whose community, B'nai Shalom in Westboro, Massachusetts, was part of Sinai and Synapses project, Scientists in Synagogues, which focused on the ways in which technology is changing who we are. Rabbi Gurevitz was ordained from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 2006 and received her doctorate in cultural geography from University College London in 1999. She is an associate of CLAL, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, where she was in the pioneering fellowship year of Rabbis Without Borders, and she was selected for a LEAP Fellowship, a partnership with the Katz Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies at UPenn, and serves as a mentor with the CLE program, the Clergy Leadership Incubator. This conversation was recorded on January 5th, 2021. Welcome, everybody, to Sacred Science, our fourth episode here. Uh, I am Rabbi Jeff Middleman. I am the founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science, exploring so many huge, big questions that we're facing in this world, ranging from technology to the ethics of vaccines, which are starting to finally get rolled out, to questions of climate change and astronomy and quantum entanglement. And I'm very excited to be sitting here with my friend, Rabbi Rachel Gurevitz, and we met uh, over 15 years ago at URJ Kutz Camp, Alav HaShalom, which unfortunately is closed, but we were on faculty, I think we were on staff actually together at the URJ Teen Leadership Academy. And Rachel and I have gone through programs at CLAL, which is the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. And in 2016, her community, Congregation B'nai Shalom in Westboro, Massachusetts, was part of our project, Scientists in Synagogues, exploring questions of the way technology has changed who we are. And even since you were part of that project in 2016, you're still looking at fascinating scientific questions. And so, Rachel, I'm thrilled to be sitting here with you in two different locations. Well, it's great to be with you, and thanks very much for the invite to join you this afternoon. So I'd love to start by by asking you to share a little bit about what got you excited about these questions of science and Judaism. You were part of the first group to be part of scientists and synagogues, and what got you and your community excited about and thinking about it in terms of these questions? When we first looked into joining scientists and synagogues, I think I started by coming at it in a very pragmatic way. I uh, jumped at the concept because of where my congregation is and who a fairly good chunk of my congregation, what they do professionally. We are in this uh, corridor that goes westward between Boston and uh, Worcester. And in this area, we have a very high amount of uh, people involved in the medical 
world, not just in doctors and nurses, but in uh, medical research. Uh, we have a lot of people involved in biotech, a lot of people in tech in general. Uh, there's just an awful lot of that industry out here, all kinds of research, uh, people involved in all kinds of aspects of computer science. And so we have just a lot of people who uh, that's how they think about the world, that's how they engage in the world. And I don't think there was an awful lot of uh, explicit connection between what many people did professionally uh, for a living and their sense of their Judaism. And you know that was the whole point of scientists and synagogues was seeing how these two worlds could perhaps be in conversation and might actually help people think about uh, these different pieces of their Jewish identity in a way that was a little bit more integrated. So that was sort of my starting place. Uh, but I have to say that, you know, now that we've been doing this for a while, uh, you know, I, I realized that there's an, an awful lot else that was behind um, the interest in, in doing this. Uh, you know, if I think back to my own childhood, uh, I, I've, I've always had a fascination with science. I'm not somebody who has a particularly high level grasp of very technical science. I, I fancied myself in that way, you know, I think in my early teens, and then I tried doing physics and biology and chemistry uh, for um, the exams that I had to take at 16 in high school. And that taught me that that perhaps wasn't my forte. <laughs> but, yep. um, but I love what the sciences bring to us in terms of knowledge and understanding of the world, even if I don't have the personal skill set to grasp it all. And so to be able to come back to some of the, the fascination, the awe and the amazement that comes with looking at the world, both at the macro level and at the, the extreme, extreme micro uh, level, uh, the way that science does, and to think about what that reveals about our world and who we are and then how that might interface with some of the existential questions that come up in terms of you know, a faith-based way of thinking about what does it mean to be a human being? You know, what is our purpose? Where, where are we taking the world? Uh, just to be in a space where we can have those conversations is thrilling uh, and, and quite enlightening. So I think we've gained so much more than just the you know, connecting the dots for people who do some of this stuff professionally. And, you know, when you talk about tech and technology, we think about technology as the latest iPhone or being able to Zoom, you know, that's when we think about technology. But if, but if you think about technology as a human endeavor to shape or create the world and, and, and make the world different than what it was previously, other animals don't have technology. Um, plants don't have technology in the way we would think about it in this kind of way. So it's very deeply rooted in our human evolutionary history, and it's very rooted in biblical text. It's, it's one of the first things that happens in, in Genesis in Bereshit um, about Adam creating and, and God creating and Eve creating. And, and these are questions of what happens when we create something and it is no longer ours? We, we use the phrase of, of technology giving birth to things and in the same way that we give birth to children and we no longer control those children. They are their own people. The technologies that we birth, we don't always understand how they're going to redound back onto us. 
Right. No, for sure. And I think that uh, we've seen that you know some of the tools that we have created uh, have enabled uh, the unfolding of civilizations uh, in ways that you know are just astounding when we think about the potential of human creativity. Um, but with every single stage, there have been questions about uh, the the ethics of the power that we have. Uh, and I often think about creativity and creation in terms of, you know, that that power. I mean, whatever we believe about God, the fact that uh, we're told that we're made in the likeness of God and God has the power to create, we see in so many different ways that we have that power to create. And oftentimes we get caught up in the magnificence of our ability to do that. Um, and we see in so many spheres that the the moral questions or the the questions of what new reality has unfolded because of our creations that that happens as a secondary question um, because there's just that innate uh, drive to experiment and to try and to do new things and there's so much positive with that um, but there's another side as well that we're we're constantly grappling with and it starts with speech you know aside from what we have the ability to invent and create and make or understand about the world, you know, the Bible, you know, might be speaking allegorically when it says God says, let there be light. Um, but, you know, we create realities for ourselves and for each other all the time through the act of speech. Uh, and so much of what we've created, especially when we're thinking in, um, you know, in the modern era about the vehicles through which we communicate, with each other and share information, um, we see the incredible power of those vehicles to magnify um, speech in ways that can be very inspirational and can also be incredibly harmful and destructive. And and what's interesting is the is the power of speech, which is actual speech doesn't live in the world for very long, right? Your breath goes out and and it just dissipates out into the world but the idea of writing and recording that actually lives forever and and particularly now with with social media with different recordings of someone will tweet something then and they were kind of a nobody in 2013 and then they become a major public figure and and they can go through their tweets and say wait a second look at what that person said in 2013 there's a record of the speech and the potentially destructive speech that they had and there's there's still a lot of ethical and and etiquette questions surrounding social media surrounding the kinds of conversations what's appropriate what's not appropriate who is the audience that's that's here and that's a challenge Judaically, and it's a question for us in in 2021 right now. Yeah, no question. And and you know, one of the areas of science that I know is most cutting edge, which uh, I know very little about. So um, forgive me if there is anybody you know who's listening who really knows this field. But I, I'm I'm just uh, I'm intrigued by questions that that are being thrown up by the field of um, quantum physics. Um, quantum entanglement, all of these different ideas that, you know, that, that are looking at questions as to whether something like thinking a thought or observing something creates a reality. 
that may or may not have manifested were it not for the thought being thought or the observance taking place. Um, and if you think about the possibility that at the quantum level that uh, a thought or a taking something in is changing the course of what happens next in any particular moment or in the larger unfolding of the universe, then it, I think, really helps us to glean the, the weightiness of how much more so when we turn thoughts into words that are then shared to a broad audience and are taken in by more and more people. Um, you know, and, and I, I do think about how so much of our religious tradition in a very, very different language speaks to those issues. So if we take, for example, um, we, we did a session at our congregation a couple of years ago, one of our congregants who now teaches a science, scientists and synagogues um, elective with our high school students, uh, did a program on black swan events and uh he was showing us the sort of the the science of them and the sense that we perhaps these rare events that sort of take us by surprise are actually happening more and more frequently because of the speed of change and the speed of what technology and our inventiveness has permitted and we looked at the Jewish response to some of those transformative, you know, completely catastrophic, completely, you know, out of the box events that totally transformed uh, Jewish history. And if you look at something like um, the destruction of the temple, which we see as a absolutely transformative turning point in Jewish history, in terms of creating a whole different way of doing Jew Jewish, being Jewish, living as Jewish community uh, with the beginnings of a rabbinic era, that it, how fascinating it is that embedded in the rabbinic stories about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of that moment of, you know, the unfolding of our history is this story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa and how it was uh, these acts of uh, baseless hatred essentially acts of speech that created the catastrophic moment out of which we had to kind of reinvent ourselves. Mm. Um, it's a completely different realm of literature, a way of thinking. And yet, <laughs> how different is it from, you know, when we look at uh, the unfolding or looking back at what we might call a black swan event in, in a more contemporary situation? And, you know, there are a couple of different things that, that are leading to some thoughts. One is the idea of one of my favorite quotes from, from Kierkegaard, which is that life has to be lived forward, but can only be understood backward. And, and you don't always know how important something is until you look back on it. Um, and, and so you don't know that a uh, by definition, you don't know that a black swan is going to happen and it's going to be a, massive transformative event until you look later 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But the other thing that I think is is interesting is COVID in, in March and April of 2020 and all of the 
discussions, particularly in more traditional Jewish circles where, where there's elements of halakha, elements of Jewish law, on what technology is allowed and what is not allowed, and even questions that are happening right now, which is that we are living in the moment right now and everything feels so urgent immediately right now. And, and there are some people who are saying, wait a minute, let's look at the long trajectory of Jewish history of, of 2,000 years, 1,500 years of, of rabbinic literature, and let's not totally and completely reinvent all of Jewish law because of this particular event, because it feels so urgent right now. And at the same time, the technology is different in 2020. The opportunities are different in 2020 than, than we did in, in the year 600. Would the rabbis have made different halachic decisions if Zoom existed when the plague of, plague of Justinian was happening, for example? Right, 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 right. No, I, I, those are uh, you know, fascinating questions to, to consider. I, I think that, um, you know, we, What's interesting to me actually is, I mean, those are technical questions and different denominations have different ways of dealing with, shall I or shall I not use this piece of available technology in this way, in this moment to create some kind of engagement? Um, you know, certainly speaking for our congregation, uh, all of the rounds of conversations that I've had prior to big you know moments in the sort of the festival year certainly leading up to high holy days big time but also um uh you know what we did uh for hanukkah uh what we'll likely do for pesach this year is as opposed to just even in a progressive community where we don't really have a problem using the technology and simply saying, here it is, we've got this easy path that allows us to continue to do everything that we were doing. What we're hearing over and over and over again is how people are thirsting for real human connection and looking and always looking for the opportunities uh, to create those. Um, that in some ways, while the technology seems to create this veneer of, you know, all of these alternative ways of being and existing, actually what we really um, thrive on and really need and desire as human beings actually hasn't changed very much, <laughs> I think, uh, over the millennium. And, and we keep kind of coming back to how to be human in this moment. Um, the challenges are different, the possibilities are different, but sometimes the core essence of, you know, what we think it is to be us um, and what is our purpose to be living a life as a human being is not is not really so different. That, that's one of the things I find fascinating when I've dug into looking at Midrashim or rabbinic texts or other legal texts as a sort of um, counterpoint to the scientific presentations that we've had in our programs at the synagogue is that when we get to the the underlying question, the philosophical questions about what's the meaning of this, uh, we find that the the human questions um, haven't always changed a great deal. Yeah, I mean, human nature is, <laughs> excuse me, at least several hundred thousand years old, you know, as you know, modern homo sapiens. And part of what it means to be human is to use technology, is to change our environment. And I'm remembering uh, one of the programs at your synagogue, and I remember visiting there, was, was Jeremy Wertheimer, uh, from Google speaking and and 
I've now heard actually a few different people talk about this analogy, but I find it fascinating, which is people talking about the ethics of self-driving cars, right? There is absolutely no way that the rabbis of the Talmud understood about self-driving cars. That's just, there's so much that is outside of their understanding or worldview, and they would just, it would blow their mind if that was even to think about it. But they do have a lot of conversations in the Bible and then in, in later rabbinic literature about the ox that gores. If you own an ox and it's in the habit of goring somebody, who is ultimately responsible? And the questions of self-driving cars, it's not should I buy one or should I not buy one? How much does it cost? The questions are who will who will ultimately be responsible, not if, when it hurts or kills somebody. And there's actually a lot of analogy there because an ox, like a self-driving car, is not a human being. It's used to be able to make life easier and, and faster. It may, in fact, it is likely to, it almost certainly will hurt somebody. So who is ultimately responsible? And there's actually some tremendous wisdom from rabbinic literature from about the these biblical and rabbinic texts to apply to 21st century questions here. Right. No, I mean, that, that was a particularly wonderful and fascinating presentation. And what was so wonderful with Jeremy Wertheimer is that, you know, he was a VP of Google, you know, had come into that uh, organization having, first of all, you know, done his own, um, you know, created his own product uh, that was, you know, uh, incorporated into Google, uh, has a PhD in, you know, in AI. Uh, but is also an observant and learned Jew who was able to bring these Talmudic texts uh, to us and actually look at, uh, you know, how there are these similar questions being asked. Um, you know, what I find when I think back to that, uh, that program, which we did now, what's this, three years ago? Yeah, at least, um, lost track of time a little bit, is that you know, he very strongly, I think, believed that we had the kinds of ethical frameworks that we would need, or we would have the ability to evolve them to, um, you know, to deal with all that AI would bring forth in our world, because, you know, because these questions were not new questions. And, you know, there was a lot uh, of that which was very convincing. I was, you know, just mentioning before we went on air that just the other week I watched uh, the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I, I highly recommend it, in which a lot of people who were there in the early days of Google and Facebook, for example, uh, now are expressing some concerns about what the algorithms and the AI that they that they use in those systems, what they bring forth. Um, because, you know, in some ways, it's not that it's, uh, simple to figure out the ethical dimensions of who is responsible with a self-driving car. I mean, I, I make no claims that that's a simple question to solve, you know, whether it's the people who design the car or whether it's the person behind the wheel who ought to have known that they needed to take, you know, still be aware and awake and intervene when the car looked like it was, you know, making a mistake. Uh, but then what you do in the situations when, uh, you know, either way is going to cause harm and which way causes the least harm. I mean, there's a lot of experimentation. None of that is simple, but I think it's relatively simpler than dealing with what we're dealing with today, which is how, what is being brought to us through social media. You know, um, when I think about the, th just the simplest things, the things that I have purchased in the last 12 months that I never would have purchased had the ad not been shown to me. Now, 
in some ways, that's true of watching TV as well, of anything, right? Except that the TV channel is, you know, there are people who are choosing which channel to advertise which products to. But with social media, the feeding of that, the, the algorithms that are going into what I see versus what you see. And advertising is just a tiny fraction of it. When we come to think about, you know, the news articles uh, that are thrown up to me, the opinion pieces, the things that are going to get an emotional reaction from me so that I'm going to read that piece or share that piece or respond in some other way to information that is coming to me. Um, the question there of how that might be shaping my way of looking at the whole world, understanding what's going on uh, in any particular moment in time, whether it's in my town or my country or the whole world. And when individuals become groups of people who are thinking and believing certain kinds of things because of the way in which these algorithms are you know, designed to get us engaged with the platform and to keep reading. Um, you know, then when we have the question of where does the ethical responsibility lie for what manifests from that? That I think is so much more complex, you know, and we're seeing these arguments and these debates playing out right now. You know, uh, the, there are those who want to hold the platforms responsible uh, for you know, this, this network that they've created. Um, I, it's, it's an incredibly complex ethical field. Uh, and just us even being self-aware or conscious, conscious of how we think about who we are and how we act and the choices we make and the groups we affiliate, how that might be changing because of how these algorithms or how AI is bringing information to us, I think raises really, really deep philosophical questions about who we are as human beings in this moment. And, and what's interesting is that so much of, and I'm gonna say technology more narrowly of things along the lines of social media and, and phones and the stuff that we're using now, right? They're, the technology, when we think about technology, we think about a lot of zeros and ones and digital, digital world versus religion is in what we would call meat space. <laughs> religion is designed to be physical and ritual with questions of bowing and questions of carrying something and holding something and striking the match and lighting the candle, that there is an element of religion that is deeply embodied and and technology as we're using it now is is in many ways sort of the opposite of that. Now, it could be that they are in total conflict with each other or they use in a complementary kind of way to enhance each other so that if I see you on social media, when I then see you at Kiddush the next Shabbat, I can say, hey, how is your mother doing? I saw that that your mother is is in the hospital right now. And I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't on social media with that person versus how much does it become a, a narrow echo chamber so that when I am talking to that person at Kiddush, I no longer like them because my social media feed is different than their social media feed and now they are an evil, horrible human being. Right, right. I mean, that, that's it. And, and, and we're seeing that play out at, uh, you know, certainly at the national level, but I would argue even at the local level. Um, that, that's, you know, the 
So, so it, it does it that we, when we see the fragment, fragmentation of uh, communities and of groups that, um, that could be building, coming back to where we started, building and creating together in a way that um, embraces pluralism and diversity. Uh, you know, it, it's a very, very different kind of definition of community to, I think, the moment that a lot of us feel we're in at this moment. And there's a lot of uh, deep striving for how do we get from where we've, where we've gotten to in this moment back to something that looks more like that, that broad, um, inclusive kind of community. And this plays out at so many levels. I mean, it plays out within the Jewish community, you know, who's, who's counted in the we, you know, how do we think of ourselves as a we, um, and the fragmentation of different kinds of Jewish. Um, and it also, you know, plays out, as I said, nationally, and, and even within local communities, uh, in ways that uh, I know that there's a lot of um, groups and organizations that I think are working hard, striving to counter, counteract that. But it's, uh, I, I feel that that's a message that I have been uh, trying to push now for at least the last um, six, seven, eight years, consistently, as I sort of watched the deterioration of public discourse. And um, yeah, sort of looking for how, how will we turn the tide? Um, how will we bring ourselves back to something that is less fragmentary? Well, you know, that, that leads to an interesting question. I want to pivot a little bit, but linked to what you were saying, because you just did a, a presentation about Jewish views on vaccines. Um, and vaccinations, right? Generally pro-vaccine, but but there's a, but you know the question that comes up, and there was a great article in the New York Times that I think it was by Ross Dothat a couple of weeks ago, of this idea of trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. And as Dothat says, if you're saying trust, do you trust Anthony Fauci or do you trust Donald Trump? That's kind of a no-brainer. You're going to trust Anthony Fauci. You're going to trust the scientists who are doing this, but. But questioning of trust the science, it's not a question of do I trust that the vaccine is going to be safe, but it's really of a question of do I trust that it's going to be rolled out in an ethical way? Is it going to be done um, in a way that where the where the distribution is going to be effective? Are the uh, am I making the right ethical choices of who gets it when in these kinds of questions? And that's those are not scientific questions. Those are those are ethical questions. Those are questions that we need religious leaders. We need politicians. We need to be able to have lots of stakeholders in these kinds of, of conversations. So being able to say trust the science is a wonderful bumper sticker. And it's also, in my mind, kind of useless. Um, as, as somebody said, uh, you know, that the, the word trust is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that word. And and we trust the people that we trust. So what were some of the things I would love to hear what came up with these conversations about Jewish views and Jewish ethics on vaccines? Because it's not just, is this vaccine going to be effective? But there are a lot of um, ethical questions that come up as well. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, we did focus a little bit more on whether or not 
you know, we can trust in the safety of the vaccine um, in our in our initial conversation. And, and a lot of what I shared in, in this was part of a Friday night sermon. I had a couple of doctors on, one of whom were, was among the first to get the first dose of that vaccine uh, when it started to roll out in the, the Boston area. And the other is an epidemiologist, infectious disease expert who's a member of our congregation um, and uh, is at Mass General. So, you know, has a lot of expertise in the field. Uh, but coming back to the previous conversation about, you know, information and how, you know, the information is causing this fragmentation of communities. I actually think that, uh, you know, while for some of us, those of us who are interested in science um, and who at least, you know, know enough to know that there's a whole system behind what is responsibly put out in the world as science. That even though mistakes, you know, ideas evolve, it's not the mistakes are never made, but that there is um, systems of peer review. There are systems in place to check the data, right? Before something uh, manifests, before something gets rolled out. So I think that when we talk about trusting the science, there's a methodology, there's a process there in which you know, we talk about trust that many of us, I think, inherently, that's how we make decisions about what we can trust. I think, how do you, um, uh, it, how do you deal, though, with the discourse in a moment in time when uh, there's a slew of people who are choosing um, to trust in conspiracy theories, right, and in, in things that aren't based in these kinds of systemically, you know, really well grounded, rooted ways of evolving knowledge in our world. Um, something has shifted and that's part of the, you know, the fact that we're, you know, that, that we're being bombarded in ways that I think we as human beings are not yet able to grapple with in fully, you know, adaptive ways. I think that that people are being ricocheted from with this kinds of source of information. So I think the issue of actually trusting what is fact and <laughs> what is science is in fact a question more than it should be uh, in this particular moment because of all of those other things going on. The other questions you raise, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the the ethical systems of what you do when there's a limited resource and you need to bring it out. Yeah, those are questions that I think um, there are, um, there's more than one way to answer them. It's not like there's, you know, when every state has their, this is category phase one, phase one A, or phase one B, phase two, right? There, you could come up with well thought out lists of how we roll out a vaccine and get it to everyone, where not every version of that would be the same. Uh, but when we think about who are the people who are um, uh, leading, leading the cause, leading the drive, organizing the drive, trust comes up again because do we trust? Do we trust the people who are responsible? You know, or have we seen too many times um, how certain minority groups? are used um, uh, and uh, not respected and not fully informed about what it is we're be they're being asked to do. Do we uh, see too many times when who seems to get to the top of the pile uh, is to do with money 
and influence. And so trust has been eroded in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and again, this is, when it comes to human nature, this is not new. You know, if we think about um, you know, the, the latter days of the kingdoms of Israel, the latter days of the priesthood, when the temple stood, right, where trust was eroded, when there was so much corruption, uh, when the way in which the temple was being used as a way of, you know, taxing people and gleaning, um, you know, uh, enriching certain people for power and influence, and the ritual and faith-based world of um, religion in the Jewish world had been um, brought together with the political control of the Jewish world. You know, the, that post-Maccabees, post-Hasmonean era sort of evolution of the Jewish world, um, I think that was a time when we saw a lot of fragmentation because there was a lack of trust in those who claimed authority. Um, you know, I, I think about, you know, the Monty Python <laughs> life of Brian, that there's a very funny scene that sort of highlights all of the various factions in the Jewish world, right. you know, back at that time. Um, but, you know, we now see that over time, you know, there was a particular voice that gained authority and that sort of brought the Jewish people forward. Um, but there was a period in time where there were these factions that were in, you know, extreme disagreement with each other. Um, and it didn't strengthen the Jewish community. It didn't help the Jewish community thrive and survive in that moment. Um, we had to go through something that was very destructive before we then rebuilt. Uh, and I, I do wonder if we're in um, something of a moment like that, that uh, we've been living through. Although I, I may push back a little bit about that it not being a good time for, for the Jewish community at that time and and you know we don't know what was what was recorded and what was lost but but so much literature um so many ideas came out of these kinds of questions and conversations um right the the book of daniel came out at this time the 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 books of the maccabees and then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls that are there. Christianity came into that into into existence. Rabbinic literature came into existence. That um, that there there is and there is a great tension though because you need to have a legitimate authority to be able to say here's what's going to happen. Here's how these resources are going to be meted out, and they there needs to be buy-in from the populace. Otherwise, there's going to be a rebellion um, or an election of some kind, but. They didn't really have elections back then, but if there's if the ruling power is not viewed as legitimate, that does create a, a lot of a, a lot of problems on the ground, and it also creates a lot of opportunities to to generate new ideas and new literature and new ways of thinking about the world. In the same way that COVID, I think, is going to radically reshape what religion is going to look like and what synagogues are going to look like and and what Judaism is going to look like. 20, 30, 100 years from now? Yeah, but I think that, you know, when it comes, one of the questions that I find fascinating, and, and again, if I want to come back to, you know, some of the most cutting edge science, um, particularly in the quantum world, again, which I don't want to get, I, I, I think I saw um, Ernie might have joined us uh, in the Zoom room, and Ernie Walsh is our congregant who's been teaching our students, um, our scientists and synagogues elective, and um, understands this way better than me. But from some of what he has uh, shared with me for really interesting questions and conversation, um, is 
this question of whether certain things are inevitable, whether the unfolding of our existence, whether the unfolding of our universe at a particular level, certain things are inevitable. And, and if so, what, what is the, some of the driving force behind that? Um, and so I raise it as a question is, you know, with, when you gave, you know, your examples about the creativity that came out of a chaotic time that required people to think and ask questions and debate and come up with something new, you know, is that an inevitable part of the way we progress as humanity? Do we have to go through these cycles in which um, there is tremendous upheaval and sometimes destruction out of which new life, you know, comes? I mean, there's so much in so many different cultures that speak in allegory of, of, of that kind of unfolding. I mean, even if we think back to Lurianic Kabbalah, you know, the idea that worlds were created and exploded and destroyed multiple times over before God, you know, pulls back enough to allow for the physical world to exist. You know, um, that, that mystical idea of um, the shattering of the vessels um, that's part of this mystical creation story comes after Luria and his era experienced the destruction of Jewish civilization as they knew it in Spain, right. you know, with the expulsion of the Jews of Spain, you know, their world was literally destroyed, right, and shattered, and they had to pick up the pieces and figure out where they would be and how they would live and how to be Jewish at a time when a lot of people, um, you know, became hidden Jews, you know, and uh, or, you know, were killed. Uh, and so, you know, th there's something a little dark about that, but it is a question is that, you know, as human beings, what are we capable of? Are we capable of in that sort of um, progressive messianic concept of each of us doing our part to make the world a little bit better and gradually our small acts of doing things that make our lives and the lives of others a little bit better? Does that build towards the messianic world? in that linear way? Is that how our universe and our existence unfolds? Or is it in this cycle of destruction and recreation and destruction and recreation? And I don't know if we'll ever know the answers to those questions, um, but how we as individuals and as societies navigate the moment we're in, you know, I, I think is shaped a little bit by the kinds of philosophy we bring to what do we understand about the nature in which life uh, and our world unfolds? And, you know, as you talk about this question of making the world a little bit better, a little bit better, which is very, very rooted in Judaism and, and particularly in more progressive branches of Judaism, um, of this idea of the Kain Ha'olam, of repairing the world. But linking back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is technology, by definition, is designed to make our world easier and better. Now, the impact may not always be easier and better. There's nobody who is trying to go on Shark Tank and trying to make people's lives worse. They're trying to figure out what the pain points are. Um, but, but all of what we are trying to do is to create the world a little bit better. And I would even say, I think I would say this, that even politicians who I 
strongly disagree with and and feel like they are hurting our country in their own mind they are acting in a way of trying to make their constituents and their world better now i fundamentally disagree with how they are doing it but i think that most people are thinking about how can i make the world better and the question is how does it then manifest itself in the world and that we don't know until there's something that actually exists and we see what the impact is right 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 although you know it, it, well, none of this is being done in a vacuum and this comes i think back to um you know uh you know, truth knowledge science things you know that have foundation there are there are practices there are you know things that people have done that civilizations have done that our country has done historically that has been proven to Im improve the lives uh, of of people and and there are other things that have been you know rolled out and practiced for a period of uh, ex an extended period of time that have you know can be demonstrated has not um, or has led to a small group of people doing incredibly well and others being left behind I mean if we're thinking about you know economic systems for example so um, uh, you know there's there's ideologies and then there's sort of the you know the facts on the ground and and I think that I, I, I'm in some ways I'm a very pragmatic person, but I've always, even my faith has always been rooted in what is observable. And, uh, and I understand that that's, you know, subjective to some degree, but, you know, when I'm having conversations about theology, for example, I bring it back to something, you know, that's totally outside the sphere of what we've been talking about. You know, on the one hand, I am very drawn to, um, mystical concepts of God, the idea, which really does, um, uh, you know, dovetail very well with, a, you know, some of what theoretical physics has had to offer, you know, the idea of the sort of the, you know, the unfolding of the universe in which, you know, the, the God is a verb idea that we are all in the process of uh, being God and unfolding God in, in its entirety. Um, and at the same time, when I'm speaking with my students about beliefs and language and ideas that we use to convey how God shows up in our lives. Um, I'll say, you know, if you think that you've read something or that you have this concept that um, flies in the face of a direct life experience that you've had, you know, something that, you know, God, um, you know, God takes care of us, you know, and then we've watched a loved one suffer, right? Then trust the experience, right? That's what scientists do. You know, you have a theory, but then you measure it. And if you, the measurements, if the things that are observable don't match up with a theory, you don't force the facts to fit the theory. You are guided to rethink the theory. And, and so that's how I, engage with you know the faith world is is you know our observable experiences should then help us to reshape some of the beliefs that we have about how, what things are and how things work in the world and and one thing that i love and i'll i'll share this in a moment before i say that if people have questions they can write them in the chat and uh, and we'll be able to hopefully address them but one one thing that i've particularly liked as as an image of God, because I don't think there's just one image of God or one language of God. I, I find that there are a lot of different ways to be able to think or talk about God. One of them um, 
comes from an idea named Stephen, uh, from a professor named Stephen Goldman, who talked about a scientific object. So there's there's the thing that exists in the world and the thing that we understand it right now. And so the analogy that I give is the earth is whatever the earth is, right? That it exists as an object. And what we understand about it, though, has changed over the last couple hundred years. So how old is the earth? That's changed. Is it, was it round or flat? That's, that's changed. Um, are continents moving or not? That's changed. So our understanding of that has, has developed. Or atoms. Atoms are whatever atoms are, right? Like we, can, we can't control them. But our understanding of what happens on the atomic and subatomic levels, that's changed as we've developed new knowledge. I, I like to analogize that with God, that God is whatever God is, and our knowledge and our experience, that can change and, and grow. And it doesn't mean that I was totally wrong and I was an idiot to think it in that kind of way. It means that that was what I knew at that time, and new information and new perspectives are forcing me to rethink this a little bit, and now my theology has shifted and changed a little bit here. I like that analogy a lot. I think that's, yeah, that's really great. And as I have to uh, launch my theology unit with our 10th grade confirmation class this evening, I'll, I'll borrow that with the, in your name. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, um, that's, um, it's on our website too. You can see that uh, God, I think it's called God is a scientific object to be able to, um, to see that there. And that's, and I think that's, that's really accurate that you need to trust our experience. And the truth is, that's kind of what science is is designed to be able to say. Science is our understanding of what what we can know right now, what we can explain. Now, it's not necessarily just our, our five senses, but it is what are we able to understand and measure and, and gauge. And that's what science is designed to be able to do. And sometimes there's going to be new information and new measurements here. But but yes, if, they, if there's new data that that is shown to be accurate and overturns a theory. You don't hold on to that theory because it was really nice back then. You've got to think about what's the interplay between that, that, that theory and the new data. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. I think it's a really helpful way to sort of have these concrete examples from, you know, science that now is established, um, you know, to demonstrate the evolution of our thinking. Um, and it, it does, seem incredible that we, you know, sometimes it appears we're in a moment where um, not everyone is um, absorbing and evaluating information in that way. And that makes, you know, this question about how we evolve and move forward as a society, I think, um, that much more complex in this moment. And, and you know, coming back to, to your line earlier of being able to trust, and I think that's, that's one of the real challenges that we're facing in our society right now, which is that we've we've lost the trust of legitimate authorities in a lot of ways, or, or many, more people have lost trust in more authorities. So a lot of people no longer trust institutional religion. Um, it, a lot of people actually still find value in religion, but they don't necessarily trust institutional religion. There's a lack of trust in government. There's a lack of trust potentially in, in the scientific community. And it's, and and all of the laws and ideas are are wonderful, but they're kind of useless if there's not a basis of trust all around in our society right now. Right. And I think that, you know, I keep coming back to whenever we're looking at patterns and they might be temporary, but 
things that um, profoundly affect the human experience. Because I know that, you know, for me, you know, faith, faith, there's faith and, you know, there's heritage, there's culture, there's a sense of peoplehood. But then for a lot of us, there's community. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways to create community, but there's something about faith-based communities um, that at least, you know, the way that we practice them, uh, you know, gives us uh, a space to have these kinds of conversations that we're having. I mean, that's what scientists and synagogues did for our congregation, gave us a space to introduce some conversations that brought people together from across our congregation who, you know, otherwise wouldn't be in conversation with each other and builds community. Um, and then those communities um, are then, you know, brought to the service of other things above and beyond themselves. Uh, and I think that, that you know, that's faith-based community at its best is when, um, you know, that's the experience that people are having. But in a world where, you know, there's a, a dismissal of the potential of those vehicles, um, I worry about the isolation of people and, and who we are as human beings, uh, you know, our, our mental health, our, um, our ability to, to thrive, to experience joy, um, to connect with all kinds of things beyond ourselves is I think uh, damaged when we uh, find ourselves in this more fragmentary individualistic kind of moment. And, uh, you know, I, it doesn't have to be the faith-based community or congregation that's the vehicle for community. But I, I do worry about um, uh, where that is taking us. And I've had conversations, really thoughtful conversations with some of the younger members um, of our community or people who have connected to our community temporarily in one way or another, and, and everything is interrelated. So, you know, if I think about it, you know, one of the sort of millennials in our congregation talking about how something like the, the changing economy means that the need to change jobs, the need, you know, what used to, people used to talk about the job for life and a certain quality of living. And now the need to get up and find the next, you know, we have people who are picking up every five, six years and moving across country to, you know, create the next opportunity for themselves, for their families. Um, that has uh, contrib contributed to this kind of fragmentation. Um, it's hard to put down roots. It's hard to invest emotional and spiritual energy in creating community with people who are not just like you. Mm -hmm. Coming back to the conversation we had earlier, you know, to have a more pluralistic community, to want to create um, community with the people who are with you geographically, even if they are not just like you. Why would you invest that energy if? three, four, five years later, you're going to be picking up and going somewhere completely different. And so the, and then that brings us back to the online spaces and technology. You know, millennials are much better at um, using those spaces uh, to try and recreate a different kind of experience of community because some of the more embodied, grounded experiences that uh, perhaps a previous generation had more direct experience of is it's it's hard for them to grasp and to 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 keep hold of. So so all of these things are interrelated, but I think that they come down to um, what it is we human beings are seeking 
um, and needing to thrive um, and, and trying to find ways of articulating that and demonstrating how certain vehicles might provide some of what it is people most need in their lives. That's a job that we certainly have as faith communities that perhaps we've not done as well as we need to. And, and you know, you and I have both been so influenced by by Claw and the line from from us is from, from our friend Rabbi Erwin Kula, who came from Clay Christensen, which is what's the job it gets done and for whom? And that that changes. And that's a great question for new technologies of, of what's it what's it doing and, and for whom. But religion also is this question of of what's it designed to do and and who's it doing it for and and sometimes it's not meeting the people that we intended to meet but but we've also got to be able to understand who are we trying to reach and and how and why right so i want to thank you rachel for taking some time to think about so many of these big questions ranging from technology to ethics to interplay and, and community it was absolutely fascinating to talk with you so thank you for taking some time here this afternoon well, thank you for the opportunity. I, I don't know if I've done much to kind of <laughs> uh, lift up anyone's spirit. It's, it's a, you know, a, a complex world that we live in. But I, I do find these opportunities to think outside of the little bubbles and the boxes of these individual disciplines, whether it's technology, science, philosophy, religion, sociology, economics. I mean, to, to have the space where we see how all of these are intertwined uh, in uh, who we are and how we live our lives and what we give to the world, uh, I think is um, the, the fundamental questions that at different levels really engage us all. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sacred Science and the ways in which humanity and technology are so deeply intertwined. You can follow Rabbi Gurevitz on Twitter at Rabbi Gurevitz. And our guest next time will be Professor Tanya Lombroso, Professor of Psychology at Princeton University, as well as an associate of the Department of Philosophy and the University Center for Human Values. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses and is part of the Judaism Unbound Network. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus and Zach Jackson. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at sinaiandsynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can visit Sinai and Synapses website or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Sinai and Synapses, on Twitter at Sinai Synapses, or me at Rabbi Middleman. You can also find out more about Judaism Unbound and its offerings at JudaismUnbound.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again soon. And Kol Tuv, all good things.